Hey everybody, thanks for checking out this episode of My First Sketch at MyFirstSketch.com. I'm Josh Hyam, as always. Feel free to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or on SoundCloud and get it automatically. If you use the Stitcher app, you can find the show there as well. Like the podcast on Facebook at Facebook.com slash MyFirstSketch. Email me at Josh at MyFirstSketch.com. Follow me on Twitter at MyFirstSketch. Less than two weeks away from the start of Philly Sketch Fest, you can get tickets for all the live shows at myfirstsketch.com slash tickets. We actually reduced the price of the nightly passes for the Thursday, Friday, and Saturday shows, so there's a bit of a sale going on with those. And if you keep your eye on at PHL Sketch Fest on Twitter and at Philly Sketch Fest on Instagram, we'll be rolling out some contests and extra information there over the next two weeks. Don't forget about the third annual Sketch Comedy Film Festival at the PFS Roxy Theater on Wednesday, May 30th at 7.30. You can find the lineup and the tickets are available at filmadelphia.com. But today's guest is John Hudson, currently a member of the New York City-based Big Britches. His first sketch is called The Webster's Boardroom. I read The Boss and Jan... And John reads Brian and Eric. So let's go to the sketch. Webster's boardroom. Two executives, Jan and Brian, sit at a desk. The boss walks in and sits down at the head of the table. A Webster's dictionary is propped up in the middle of the table. All right, all right. You know why we're all here. This year was the worst year of sales in the history of Merriam-Webster's Dictionary. Not a single person has bought a dictionary this year. Everyone already has one. This is simply unacceptable for the company. This is simply unacceptable for a company of our stature and something needs to change. We can increase our presence on social networks, synergize our products with alternative methods of sales, you don't know what that means, and you know it. Uh, yeah, that's true. Uh, what about making dictionaries in other languages? They already have those. Damn. We have nothing. Guess it's going to go back to working the concession stands at Spelling Bees again. Oh, no. no, no not not again. again. I got it. Eric stands up. You don't need a stand. Neither do you. What does Webster's do best? Words. We do words. Exactly. And what was the last new word? I don't know. Internet? Probably. That's the thing. There aren't any new words. And when there are new words, there's what? Four or five a year? That's nothing. That's no reason to buy a $30 dictionary. So uh, what are you saying? That we should add 100 words a year? No. That's too small time. That's something those pussies at Oxford's English would come up with. So if you want to go work for them, there's the door. No, we do something bigger. We advertise for a press conference. Huge news for Merriam-Webster set to redefine the English language. We get every media outlet hanging on to what we're going to say. And then, then comes the game changer. Which is? Eric picks the dictionary up from the table. The last dictionaries? All wrong. Eric slams the book down on the table and grins. Brian, Jan, and the other guy clap. What? No, that would never work. You can't just say that four 
470,000 words are just wrong. You can't change what things mean. We can because they mean what we say they mean. We are the fucking dictionary. That's amazing. What would um stapler mean? I will check that for you. Truck. Stapler means truck now. I drove my stapler down to the market. That works. You see, it's simple. Now, I prepared a document with all the changes. Please take one and scissor it. I beg your pardon? Section 14, transition 11. Scissor now means what memorize used to mean. Uh, I see. I shall scissor this paper immediately. Now, would you like me to coordinate the social media outreach? Uh Uh-uh-uh. You mean the table excretion bonanza. Section 17 transitions 34, 415, and 450. And yes, Brian, start immediately. You got it, boss! No, I'm the boss. Look, Eric, you just... You can't just come in here with some your sweet talk and musky smell and change the world with your words. This will never work. Even if we do this ridiculous scheme of yours, do you know how long it would take for people to memorize new words? A minor inconvenience, which is why we do it gradually. First, we change all of the nouns. Proper, then common. Those are easy. The next year, we switch all the adjectives. Then we do the verbs, then adverbs, and everything all the way until gerunds. But see... Jan here is already getting the hang of it, right, Jan? She's reading from the packet. You you must can't be able to do wristwatch completely volcano. (laughs) You're really learning fast, Jan. Dairy products. I'm proud of you. You're going to go far in this company. Dairy products so much. You see, boss, we don't just sell words. We sell emotions. Sorry, basketballs. We sell basketballs. And basketballs are a powerful thing. People care more about basketballs than money. And what is the most powerful basketball? Confusion. When people are confused about what other people are saying, they will do anything to avoid that basketball. Think of it now. You're at your sister's wedding, a motorcycle, and the groom's family uses entirely different vocabulary than yours. What are you going to do? Murder them? At your only sister's motorcycle? No. You're going to go out and buy a dictionary that costs 30 vaginas that teaches you to understand. You do that because humans love each other. And that love is worth way more than 30 vaginas. Jane and Brian are teary and are praising Eric profusely. Well, Eric, you make an outstanding argument. I must ask... Why did you choose to substitute dollars with vaginas? That's a word people use every single day. Because it's funny. (laughs) Indeed it is. How about we compromise and start small? We'll spoon feed these new words to the youth first. We'll just need some mechanism where we can easily invent definitions for words that already exist. A A place where newness will spread like wildfire, gradually building their new vocabulary. It'll have to be free. You can't have people spending their hard-earned vagina on a dream. It must be a place where the idiotic masses will take in anything we put out there. We'll call it Twitter. And blackout.
Hey, John. Hey, how's it going? Uh, so tell me about the sketch. Where did this idea come from? Yeah, so this this was a sketch I did uh, with my sketch group in 2013 back in college. And uh, where did it come from? It's hard to pinpoint the exact origin, but it was something about... It just started with the premise of like what would happen if uh, people tried to sell new dictionaries by changing the entire dictionary. Mm. Um, and it kind of went from there. Yeah, because like... Um especially as you get like into the corporate world and stuff, like there's like this whole like new level of like corporate speak. And like, it's not even like legalese. It's just like this weird where like uh, middle managers and, you know, office people, they, they make up like new definitions for words. And uh, I, like I work in retail for right now and uh, they were huge on the word cascade. Really, cascade? Like, you had to cascade your information down to everybody. Like, oh, that's incredible. Yeah, I've seen a lot of like iterate and deliverables. uh, That's been a hot one for a little while. I hate uh, the new thing of like turning nouns into verbs. Like, oh, conference about this with your teams. Like, that's not, you can confer or have a conference. Like, just, yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, changing words is annoying to me. I mean, that's that's a whole other element to that sketch that uh, I think uh, sure. I, I was not cognizant of as at the time as a like 17, 19-year-old, or no, not that young, 19, 20-year-old. Um, but that's a great reading of it where, yeah, it is kind of this analog for the ways corporations reinvent words to uh, make language theirs. Yeah, so you were ahead of your time. Good for you. <laughs> and I didn't even know it. <laughs> All right, uh, so you you did sketch comedy in college? Yeah, um, I went to McGill University up in Montreal, and okay. um, there actually wasn't any sketch going on there. There was an improv team, which I did a few sessions with and didn't really feel it, but came back to New York City over the summer and did a UCB sketch class and was like, wow, I really want to do this. Um, got a few friends together, started this sketch team called Bring Your Own Juice, and um, they're still doing shows today. Like each year they do a, they now do like three nights. Um, when we did, we had one night and that was the first time. So it's cool that we started it and it's still going on. Oh, so like it actually has become a McGill tradition of passing along through the undergrads. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I guess, five years now. And right. I think this, this year is the first year where I looked at like the poster for it and didn't recognize anybody um which was cool and weird yeah well that's very cool uh you you know we're able to start something that has continued um are you from new york originally uh sort of i was born in england um and moved to like the suburbs of new york when i was like four years old um so grew up like near near the city and then went to montreal for four years and then Moved back, lived at home for a bit, and then moved into the city proper. How did you decide to go to school in Montreal? Yeah, I, I get that question a lot whenever I tell people I went to, ca- to school in Canada. Um, and it's it was really, I mean, it was between there and NYU. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of like, you know, I'm going to come back to New York for sure. Um, might as well go hang out at a place where the drinking age is 18. <laughs> and uh, and uh, it's a bit more European. Um than New York as well, which I, I liked at the time. And 
uh, yeah, I'm glad I, I'm glad I did it. I would never live in Canada again because it is so cold. Um, but I, I enjoyed my time there for sure. Yeah, if I remember correctly, like I think Montreal is a little bit higher than I always think it is. Like, like as far as like how like, long it takes uh, to get there. Yeah, like like I mean, or even like you know, just thinking of just the plain like latitude, like. Like I, I always when I was growing up with like that Montreal Expos, I always thought it was like pretty close to like Toronto and stuff, but it's actually like yeah. higher up. Yeah, it's it's a schlep. It's like a, about a six like hour above drive. like Vermont. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You have to pretty much go through Vermont or upstate New York to get there. Um, and, and everyone from Montreal will always tell you like, oh, it's it's not colder than New York. It's the same. It it is definitely colder. Whenever I feel bad about being cold down here, I I still have the Montreal weather on my phone, <laughs> um, so I can look at it whenever I'm feeling bad and be like, oh, it it could be so much worse. Uh, so tell me, like you mentioned, growing up, uh, being born in England and then coming to America, uh, what were you into with uh, comedy? Like, what were you a fan of growing up? Yeah, it's it's been a a big mix of stuff. Definitely like British comedy was there early on. Um, cause my, my dad's English, my mom's American. Mm-hmm. Um, so my dad was always introducing me to like Monty Python and all that. Um, seeing Shaun of the dead in theaters at like 12, 13 years old was super formative as well. Maybe might've been a little older than that. Can't recall. Um, but also, uh, like I listened to weird Al since I was like six or seven years old and, Weird Al was the first concert I went to at Radio City in like, I think either 1999 or 2001 or something. So um, like, um, like Running With Scissors era. Yep. Uh, yeah, it was the Saga Begins mm-hmm. tour. Um, and I actually just saw him on his like f- fan service tour where he only played originals and no mm-hmm. covers. Um, and it was, it was maybe one of the best nights of my <laughs> life. <laughs> um. Yeah, I, I got, like, I wasn't totally into Weird Al as a teenager, like, um, but I do remember that, like, I had I had Running With Scissors, and I knew Saga Begins, and I knew the lyrics to that better than I knew the lyrics to uh, uh, American Pie. Oh, there so, you go. So, uh, if we were working on group stuff in high school, uh, my teacher would play music, and American Pie came on, and somehow, like, I clicked in, and I just started singing the, the parody lyrics, and all <laughs> the kids around me were like, what what are you doing i was like oh i'm sorry that's weird out like and just like i was completely like ashamed and like oh sorry sorry that's weird yeah it's embarrassing at a, at a young like weird owl is super cool up until you're like 11 and then you kind of have to hide it and be a little ashamed of how much you love him and then you become an adult and it's cool again so what else were you into like yeah i so i, I was thinking about this a few months ago where i realized that the um, SNL coverage of the 2000 election was super influential to me, I think. Like, it's one of the earliest things I really remember finding insanely funny, like the strategery and, like, lockbox and all that stuff, like those debate parodies. Um, and that would have been 2000 when I was eight years old. Um, so to, like, remember, like, that's, like, I, I feel, like, pretty early to – uh be thinking, oh, this is funny. How do they make that funny? Maybe I want to do that. I always think when you're, when you're a certain age, like some of the political stuff goes way over your head, like could possibly go over your head. Like, did you understand? Like, yeah, that, the whole Bush Gore thing and the the characterizations that they were doing. That's a good question. I, I think 
I maybe had a pretty tenuous grasp on it. I'm sure my parents kind of clued me in on stuff. But I, I think what made those sketches work so well is that it was almost like it, it was, it had that political layer, but it was also just funny character work mm-hmm. and like really committed goofy performances. So you don't have to understand politics to think it's funny when Will Ferrell says uh, strategery and then does his George Bush laugh. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know. You'd have to go ask back and ask my <laughs> eight-year-old self <laughs> how much of it I really got. I, I did though. I remember. I think when I was maybe six or seven, I made uh, a, an insult to a friend that really hurt him. Where I said, "Oh well, you probably slept with Monica Lewinsky." Um, without understanding what that even meant. I think I even said you had sex with Monica Lewinsky and then he got really upset about it and told his mom who called my mom who asked me if I said it and I said no. And then she was like, kept asking me and I broke down crying and uh, said, I did, I did say he had sex with Monica Lewinsky. I'm sorry. <laughs> so I, I knew something. <laughs> Such a bizarre insult for a child to heat. I know. Also, not that insulting. <laughs> no, not really. Um, I also I ask everybody. I'm most curious since SNL is so huge. Who's your favorite SNL cast member? Whoa, that's mm, actually it's not that tough. I don't think. I, I think it's probably Will Forte. Um, I think he's he's so versatile. Like he can do physical. He can do like voice work. Like he can really kind of do all sorts of forms of expression. Um, plus, I've been watching a lot of Last Man on Earth lately, and I think he's incredible in that too. So, yeah, uh, whenever like Will Forte's come up quite a bit, so I have to talk. About oh Last no Man. way! Like I have to talk about Last Man on Earth because it's just so good to me. Like yeah, I, uh, like I just finished the season. Like, okay, I'm, I'm midway through season four. So okay, like uh, it's it's so it's so good. Like I don't think there's any show like recently that like when I finish an episode, like I want to watch the next one, like quick, that quickly. Yeah. Um, and whenever I watch it, I'm like, is anyone talking about this? Cause no, I feel like none of my friends do. I don't see people posting about it online. So I'm like, it, people must be watching it. Cause it's got four seasons, but I hope like, cause uh, and then I, after I read, I watched the finale, I, uh, I read an interview like on entertainment weekly where he's just like, yeah, this is the end. Like, thanks for four seasons. Like, you didn't have to do that. I'd like <laughs> more, but thanks for well, what we've done so far. Like, he seems so grateful that like this weird idea has gone on. And I yeah, he seems like a really sweet dude. And I, I think part of why he's my favorite cast member is because he's a bit of an unsung hero. I think, mm-hmm. um, especially like considering the people he's been on SNL with, who usually get the all the accolades and headlines. Yeah. Uh, Cause I think, I think he thinks of so many of the other cast members in that time have become like bigger stars, like, you know, Kristen Wiig and uh, Bill mm-hmm. Hader, like, yeah. Where Will Forte is kind of like hiding in his own, like Fox show that is weird and awesome. And I love it. And yeah, that's, that's right where he wants to be. I, I think. Uh, it's so good. You need to watch it. It's, it's such yeah a- <laughs> yeah to the listeners watch watch the show yeah. what i love about it is it's always good for like one or two big laugh out loud moments in episode mm-hmm. um whereas even if like okay maybe the storyline isn't as strong this one um there's always going to be some moment of will forte just going so over the top and 
I really respect that. I love it. Um, all right. So where do you like, where do you get to the point of wanting to do comedy? Like, I mean, you mentioned, uh, bring your own juice in college. You went and took a, a sketch class at UCB. Like, where do you get to that point of like, Hey, let's, let's do this myself. Yeah. Uh, I've always been into performing. Um, I did some like child actor stuff, uh, when I was super little, did a couple of commercials. I was actually in a, like, are they like, did you do any like national or regional commercials that like might possibly be on the internet at this point? One of them should be. Um, and it's not, which is infuriating, but it was a, I think it was in the North only in the Northeast, but it was a commercial that ran before movies. Um, with Rob Hubel called Inconsiderate Cell Phone Man. Do you recall that maybe? Um, it was like a jingle. So. You know, he's Inconsiderate Cell Phone Man. And he'd be like mauled by a tiger <laughs> in inappropriate situations. Um, hmm. There were like three or four spots of it. And you can find everyone on YouTube except the one I was in. Um, oh no. I know. It, it, so I have it on a VHS somewhere. I need to upload it one day. But uh so I was in that and like working with Rob Hubel at the age of like nine was really cool. Um, I was just, I was playing opposite him in a chess game and I was kind of glaring at him while he was on his cell phone. And he, he said something like, I told you I wanted pastrami on rye. Uh, and I'm just pissed off cause I'm playing him in a chess tournament. Um, so, so did a lot of that stuff when I was younger. So I always kind of felt like that was an avenue, but would always kind of resist uh, going all in into acting because mm-hmm. I saw like friends of my mom who were actors. And I'm like, oh, this seems like a really tough life that you really have to go all in on. I kind of want to be more multi-dimensional and stuff. So went to a liberal arts school, got a bachelor of arts in economics, which was a waste of time. But um, while I was there, did like a lot of work in TV. Uh, was able to kind of get a career in television out of that um, on the production side. But yeah, starting to do that sketch stuff there, um, kind of just made it uh, made me realize that that's what I really liked, and especially since I've moved to New York City and I've really gotten the pound the pavement here, um, I've come to terms with the fact that uh, doing comedy is the only thing that truly makes me happy and is what I need to spend my life doing. So, well, that answers my question, like the question I normally end with. Uh, about why you do it uh. <laughs> yeah it, it, it i never feel more alive than when i'm doing that stuff you know um and like i just had a really great uh like writers meeting with a couple people i'm doing a show within a couple weeks i was talking to the guy um i was working with after that uh and i'm like man that that felt mm-hmm. good you know um and you know it just, like yeah makes me feel alive <laughs> Uh, you mentioned coming back, like I think after your freshman year and doing UCB, who was your instructor at UCB? Yeah, um, it was this woman, uh, Rachel Mason, um, who's really funny. She moves out, sure, she lives out in LA now, as uh, as is the pattern for people, yeah. <laughs> it seems. Um, but then uh, two years later, came back uh, after college and started doing the improv, doing the sketch, and there I had uh, Molly Lloyd. Um, who's super funny, Aaron Jackson, who is on uh, The Opposition right now. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, that Jordan Klepper show. And then for Sketch had 
this guy Colin Elzey, Madeline Baldanzi, Georgie uh, Aldaco, and they were all they're all great. They're all really cool. Was that just the the sketch uh, curriculum, or did you do improv there too? Yeah, yeah. So that was the sketch uh, stuff. Molly and Aaron were improv. Um, also had like Sylvia Ozels, um, who's been on Stepfathers for ages and uh, was incredible. This guy Patrick Noth and various other uh, classes down the line. But uh, uh, you know, I've kind of found at this point that more than classes, it just needs to be getting out there and doing the work. You know. All right. So you you're doing sketch. Uh, you, you did sketch college, you moved back to New York and you actually moved into the city. So what's mm-hmm. your first step when you get to New York city? Yeah. So, well, first I'm living out of my parents' house, um, which is a train ride away. How, so how much of a train ride? Like, uh, like 50 minutes to grand central, but I also have to get to the, like the train station. That's 15 minutes from my folks house. Um, which usually means getting a ride or taking a bus. So um, I was working a job in the city and would like do classes, go shows at night, had a couple of cousins in college who I'm forever indebted to because they would let me crash on their floors. Um, But yeah, so I I think pretty much as soon as I got back, I signed up for a sketch and an improv class um, because I was like, yeah, I want to, I want to do this. I want to get involved. Um, it was a pretty immediate priority, I think. Hmm, okay. Uh, tell me about Clip Show. How does Clip Show come together? Oh, uh, Clip Show? I mean, big, uh, you're not Clip Show. You're Big yeah, Bridges. Yeah. The, uh, a different New tell York. Me, <laughs> tell me about Big Bridges. Yeah. So um, Clip Show is very funny, though, and people should go see it in It New says York. right here at the top of my screen, John from Big Bridges. And, <laughs> like, ugh, that's so dumb of me. I'm sorry. Hey, it's, it's early. It's before noon. Uh, we got a free pass before <laughs> noon. Um yeah, so we were all in a, or well, most of us were in a improv 401 together, um, okay. which we started a really big team out of, um, and then kind of pared that down over a year and a half to kind of, I guess it was, yeah, four of us who really um, felt like we vibed and were on the same page. And uh, what started our sketch thing was doing Montreal Sketch Fest, which obviously I went to school there. Um, so we all did that and then kind of started to find that more than improv, what really resonated with us was doing sketch. Um, so that, that's where I met, uh, Calvin, Emily and Kintad. Um, and then about a year after that, um, Calvin and Emily and I wrote a show called Glen Gary, Glen Escalator, which was a Glen Gary, Glen Ross takeoff about escalator salesmen. Um, that we cast Colby in and Colby had been a friend of ours for a while and just fit so naturally. And then we invited him to do Montreal that year. So I, was gonna say, I think, I think everyone hearing that from Colby's perspective of being, uh, yeah, I'm excited to listen, listen to his episode <laughs> here, hear how he feels about it. Uh, I think it was all positive. Yeah. Yeah. He, he's, we, we've talked about as much, uh, where it's kind of this, you know, it's, it's like, uh, it's it's like uh, when you're when you're flirting with someone, you're making eyes across the room, and we we wanted him on the team, and he wanted to be on the team, and then we said, <laughs> "Screw it, let's throw caution to the wind and do this thing." <laughs> okay, so how is like how does Big Britches work for you? Like, do you guys meet roughly weekly? Do you 
like what's a general like season for big britches as you prepare for a show yeah it's um it's been a fun thing to kind of figure out as we go along because uh i think part of why or i mean definitely why people don't really do sketch a lot is because it takes a lot of work to do it well and to be consistent and to like push yourselves and get new material and stuff so what's helped is having these festivals that we've done to really kind of be these tent poles where we can say okay this is what we're aiming towards but uh, right now we've kind of gotten to the swing where we'll have a weekly meeting that'll usually be a writer's meeting um we'll go over a lot of admin stuff uh which is always fun um and winds up taking more and more of our time the more we do it seems where uh like right now we have three monthly shows going on at three separate venues so it's always like okay who are we booking are we getting the facebook graphic and all that stuff so it's all that like legworky stuff that gets that isn't as fun as wow, doing three, comedy three monthly shows like yeah um, um luckily we do uh improv at one of them so it's not like three brand new sketch shows a month which would be insane yeah and the way we like one of our shows is our kind of working it out show where it's like back of a divey bar we can do whatever we want uh this is where we like try new sketches and then uh and that's called the big filthy monday okay um then we have uh the big kahuna which is where we do like our more polished stuff and is kind of stuff we've been working on a bit um, and then we have the big cactus, which is an improv show. And we also give out a free cactus. Uh, why? Like what's, um, what's the, what's the reason there, of that? <laughs> there's really no reason we needed a name for a show. And we liked, uh, kind of branding all of our shows with a big moniker. Um, and we're just like bouncing words around and Emily suggested, what about big cactus? And I was like, yeah, what if, and what if we did like a cactus sweepstakes, uh, out of it and they're like yeah sure john whatever as long as you buy the cactuses yourself i was like uh, well, yeah definitely <laughs> they're like two dollars it's super easy um, yeah they're yeah a song cactus is fine it's get them yeah and people go nuts um, for the thing i tell you so you have the a trial show basically where you're, you're working on stuff you have an improv show and then a basically like you know a more legitimate like polished event yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and we, we've been in that flow for about, I think, two and a half months now. Uh, we just added the big kahuna and the big cactus. Um, the other one had kind of been, we've had a show in some variation there for about two and a half years at this place, Legion Bar. So, um, it, yeah, it's only like the last few months that we've really gotten into this consistent rotation, which has been really fun. And where are these... Uh, so you mentioned Legion Bar. Like, yep. what rough neighborhood of New York is that? Like, yeah. So that's in Williamsburg. Okay. Um, Big Cactus is in Greenpoint, which is just above Williamsburg, mm-hmm. and Big Kahuna is at this place called the Parkside Lounge, um, which is in the Lower East Side in Manhattan. Okay, so you're a little, a little bit spread out all over New York. Like. Yeah, a bit. And uh, in general, we all kind of live. I mean, none of us live in Manhattan, but we all kind of live up and down Brooklyn and Queens. So. Mm-hmm. It's uh sometimes can be tough finding a, a convenient meeting place, but that's how it goes. Where yeah, where would you normally meet? Like, yeah, we, we actually you just go to someone's apartment, or it, it depends on the the meeting type. You know, if we need to have a rehearsal, we'll like book a room somewhere, or we have this place in Union Square, which is kind of 
a nice midpoint between where we all live and where we all work okay. um, called 12th Street Ale House. And that's kind of our our dive bar where we, where we can go get $6 beers and uh, oh my read out new sketches. You saying dive bar and $6 beers is just like so uh, just incompatible to me. <laughs> and honestly, I probably underestimated the price of those beers as well uh <laughs> that's probably uh flattering them oh, my God. it's just oh it's that's... insane it's truly insane over here yeah uh i'm i'm like even when i go into Phil- like go into the city of philadelphia and drink at bars i get annoyed about like what they cost in, in the city versus out in the suburbs like wow and it's not even like six bucks it's like oh you want to I oh five bucks for a yingling, really, dude? Like, jeez. Uh, I mean, what are we talking about out in the out in the burbs? Oh, just right outside. Uh, just like you know, the first train stop out of the city, basically. How would you describe the d- dynamic? Is it, does everyone write? Does is there only like, do you bring people? Do you bring actors on when you need to? Yeah, we've started doing that um, mainly because we had a sketch that had two female characters in it, and we we only had one uh, regular woman, which is Emily. Um, and we, as much as I love the British tradition of cross-dressing in sketches, I feel like in 2018, there's only a very specific time and place for that tradition. Yeah, um, I, I'm definitely on board with you on that one. Yeah, and, and I, I still think there's a way to do fun um, men in drag sketches and obviously women in drag as well, but it, it, it almost would serve to distract from the sketch at this point um, where... It's like, well, you don't want to make the man in drag the uh, like crazy person in the sketch because that's not a great thing to do. As well as if you make them the straight man, then that's distracting. That can end up being distracting and people will think that you're trying to make the man in drag the point of the joke, which doesn't help anyone. So we wanted to avoid that. So uh, we brought in uh, uh, Mary Kate Doherty, a good friend of ours, to acting some sketches but uh in general uh yeah we all write um we all kind of come at it uh, at different frequencies and different perspectives um but in general we're all kind of contributing to all phases of the process which is, is really cool and we all seem to have different voices and are all super talented in our own unique ways mm-hmm. um which has been w- really nice in that we've been able to complement each other a lot uh, you had mentioned uh, using festivals as tent poles for yourselves. Uh, what are some of the other festivals that you've been to? Yeah, uh, so we did Toronto Sketch Fest last year as well, which was really fun. Um, and then we've done New York Sketch Fest uh, the last two years, which is run through the pit. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and yeah, those are the ones. Those are the ones that we've done, and they've all been amazing. Like they've been such a good time. I'm trying to think. Like, were you? Because uh, I know a bunch of the Philadelphia troops went up to the pits uh sketch fest was there any like did you see a bunch of like teams while you were there not really and the new york one was a bit weird just because it it it's almost a little harder to differentiate from the ones we go out of town for Mm -hmm. like it, it just kind of feels like oh yeah we're doing a sketch show at the pit we do that when there's not even a festival so uh we weren't i don't think we i we maybe saw like one other team i forget what it was um during NYC Sketch Fest, but it's really during the out of town ones where we're like, okay, we're here. Yeah, where you're, we're you're almost trapped, and so you might as well just hang out and see stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And 
what's cool is like normally, or what's cool about this uh, Philly Sketchfest is like normally we'll have a show on like uh, Saturday and we'll like drive up on the Friday, do the show Saturday, leave Sunday. And like our show is late before the show, we're rehearsing after the show, we're decompressing and, and schmoozing. Kantad and I are driving up on Saturday so we can like go see shows and hang out and oh, awesome. not have to worry about uh, working on stuff. It's just like we're just going there purely for the festival to watch shows. So right. that'll be the first time we've kind of taken a, a day to do that. I'm missing. Is there anything else that you do comedy wise other than Big Bridges? Yeah, I'll, I'll drop a few uh, promos if that's if that's cool. Sure, I mean. Uh, <laughs> so uh, on Saturday the 19th, um, I'm doing a royal wedding show. It's called Bloody Brilliant. Um, it's a, me and a couple of other British expats who are doing a British sketch show. Um, you have a, a British father, so I guess it kind of counts. But you, like, you said you moved when you were four. Mm-hmm. That doesn't count. <laughs> I, I suppose so. I, I go back a decent okay. amount. Um, Do you still have, like family over there? Yeah, I, I have I have a bunch of family. I have a passport as well, a uh, UK passport. So uh, yeah, I'm. I mean, I'm not uh, as British as maybe I hoped I would be when I was a kid, <laughs> which has been a, a weird thing to find as an adult. Where like I kind of grew up idolizing England a bit. Where you know, growing up as like a weird kid and having this identity of like oh, I'm from England, it was this thing I could kind of latch mm-hmm. onto. But then kind of going over there as an adult and not immediately feeling like I fit yeah. in um, was kind of, well, was a little disappointing, you know, because it's like this place you're like, oh, well, over there, that's where I'm from, you know. But it's like, no, you're you're a bit of both and that's, yeah. that's okay. It must be, like, I guess thinking about it, it must be weird to like have a connection to this place that you probably barely remember. And then when you go back there, be like, oh, this is... Like this is different or this is a different feeling than I want it to be. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Where like I, uh, I always like wanted to be super British and like play that up. I I think when I was a kid, I would say, Oh, I'm I'm 51% British and 49% American because I was born there. Um, Because I I thought it was cool and people thought it was cool. They, I had a little English accent when I was seven years old and all that. Um, But yeah, it was this thing of like, no, be be happy with where you're from, which is neither of these places really. Um, so I have that show on May 19th, um, which is at the Creek and the Cave in Long Island City. And then the next weekend, I'm doing a soccer comedy show because I, I worked in soccer for a few years. Um, oh, really? Yeah, yeah. That, it was my first job out of college. It was like the soccer sketch comedy YouTube channel, which was uh probably the best job I'll ever have and was too beautiful to last but uh so putting on this comedy show where got some really good stand-ups and uh some people I know from the soccer world a former player for the US national team um a big soccer journalist um his name is Heath Pierce um sure. he played major league soccer um and I was his producer for a while uh at this soccer YouTube channel so uh, it's combined with a Champions League final watch party. Um, and it's like a day of soccer, drinking, and comedy. So those are kind of my two other projects at the moment. Like, are you a big soccer guy? Yeah, very much so. Uh, okay. Not as much as I was when I worked in it. It kind of burnt me out a little bit. But sure. um, love the sport. It's a lot of fun and kind of wanted to find a way to combine these two worlds that I have that I have ties to. 
you mentioned previously basically why you do it. Uh, so maybe we won't rehash that, but like, what's something I always ask uh, for a bit of advice. Uh, it could be something like existential that you've learned about life through comedy or just a practical bit of the craft of writing sketch comedy, but what's something that you would pass on to a new writer? Ooh, that's, that's a very good question. Um, well, first I, I'll answer a bit about um, like the mentality side of it, which is something that has really helped me the last uh, few months or so, which is I read this book called The Inner Game of Tennis. Um, it's like this uh, kind of the grandfather of like sports psychology books. And it talks about uh, you have self one and self two and self one is the version of you that is telling you what to do and self two is the like version of you that knows what to do, right? So it's the difference between swinging a forehand and being like, I am moving my arm to swing the forehand now and then just doing it and knowing that you can do it. And it, it's uh, gotten me into this thing of like trusting self too and being like, okay, I have these instincts, I have uh, this voice and I just need to trust that and let it out instead of trying to manufacture and craft and that can be a little counterintuitive for writing because in writing you have to sit down and write it but instead of getting in your head and uh overthinking it it's about just trusting the process which is a very philly term um and letting it letting it out um so yeah i would say that's that's probably my advice to writers which is like trust the voice that you're developing and just get it on paper and go from there. And, and you mentioned it earlier. So why, why comedy? Why is comedy the way you spend your time? Yeah, I, I definitely the, the thing about uh, it making me feel good, which is probably the more uh, selfish version of it, but it, it's a, a selfish feeling that I think has a positive externality, um, which is me using my economics degree for the first time in uh, five years. Um where that it, it it brings me joy to be around people who uh, are experiencing joy and to uh, help cause that for people and help people feel like they're not alone and are together and experiencing something with other humans and uh, yeah it's it's that and it's also the only thing I could see myself trying to do for the next sixty years and make money off of so. Uh, yeah, I would say those two. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for doing this. We'll uh, and we'll see. Well, great. Well, thanks for having me. This was really fun. In addition to the shows John mentioned, John and the rest of Big Britches will be performing at Philly Sketchfest on Sunday, June third, in the eight thirty block along with The Amazing Flying Edelman and High Drama at Underground Arts. You can like Big Britches on Facebook at facebook.com slash bigbritchesnyc. My first sketch is a Philly Sketchfest production. You can find out more information at phillysketchfest.com or on Twitter at phlsketchfest. Instagram is phillysketchfest, and the hashtag this year is phlsketchfest10. The music on this episode is by the band Nono, which you can check out at nonoband.bandcamp.com. Like my first sketch on Facebook, this is Josh Hyam. Thanks for listening.
go see some comedy. <laughs>